Greetings, beloved, and welcome to another edition of the Modern Day Truth Ministries podcast. Uh, This is Jordan Thompson joining you yet again. And the title of today's message is A Call to True Worship. Uh, And this is a subject that has been heavy on my spirit. I've talked a little bit previously about the uh, postmodern influence on Christianity. So today I want to focus on what does the Bible define as true worship as opposed to the dichotomy of the postmodern Christian view of worship and the culture that is created within the Christian sociological climate here in 2019. But before we dive too far into that, I would ask that you join me for a brief word of prayer. Father God, as we come into your presence and into study, allow us allow us to bow before the throne of grace and receive a divine revelation, a word directly from you. May the words that are spoken today be the words that you speak from the throne above. Allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of my mind to be accepted acceptable in your sight. Lord, allow your spirit to work through me and to speak through me and to give your people a word directly from you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen and amen. As I established in our previous podcast that the belief of the postmodern Christian is a belief based off of feelings rather than absolute truth. And what I have found is that when we base our worship off of feelings, we create a culture of catering our worship. And in catering our worship to the worshiper or to us, and not to the object of our worship, the Lord, we've created a self-centered set of churches. We've taken our focus from the Lord and have placed it directly on self. We have strayed away from the biblical doctrine and the biblical idea of what true worship is, and we've drifted more so towards productions and shows that are aesthetically pleasing to us individually. You see, so many people may ask, What then is true worship? And beloved, the Bible offers some very clear and concise examples and explanations of what true worship is, both in the Old and the New Testament. If you would like to follow along, the first text that I would like to look at to explain the idea of what true worship is, is found in John, the fourth chapter. That is the Gospel of John, the fourth chapter. And we're going to look at verses 23 and 24. That is John, chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. And verse 23 begins, and these are the words of Jesus Christ. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You see, to give you context of what is going on in John chapter 4, Jesus has met the woman at the well. And he is talking to the woman at the well and he is explaining to her, what is true worship? You see, he explains in the previous verses that she will not, there will come a time when she won't worship God on the mountain that she's on or in Jerusalem. 
And you see, we see Jesus' words in verses 23 and 24, and he declares what a true worshiper is. He declares that a true worshiper of God worships him in spirit and in truth. Brothers and sisters, the overall lesson about worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth is that worship of God is not to be confined to a single geographical location or necessarily regulated to the temporary provisions of the Old Testament law that the Jews of that time adhered to. This is why Jesus tells the woman the time will come and has come where where she will not worship on that mountain or in Jerusalem. You see, with the coming of Christ, the coming of the Messiah, the separation between the Jews and the Gentiles was no longer relevant, nor was the centrality of the temple in worship because equal access to God was achieved. With the coming of Christ, all of God's children gained equal access to God through him. You see, worship became a matter of the heart, not necessarily external action, but God judges a true worshiper by their heart, by their intention, by their attitude. And a true worshiper also, brothers and sisters, finds themselves directed by truth rather than by ritual or by ceremony. You see, brothers and sisters, no longer was there a barrier between God and men, but there was a bridge and there was an intercessor, Jesus Christ. What is unique about this description of true worship is Jesus lived in the time of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were very religious, but were not very relationship-oriented. And what I mean by that is the Pharisees of Jesus' day knew all of the rituals. They knew the law of Moses and the writings of the prophets. They participated in the feast days, and they observed the Sabbath, but they did so not in effort of relationship, but in oftentimes it was a sense of obligation or going through the motions or for some even like Caiaphas who lived in a spirit of arrogance, it was for their own vanity and to show off. You see, Worshiping God in spirit and in truth removes vanity, removes obligation, and removes just going through the motions. It's strictly about seeking the face of God and seeking his truth and deepening our personal relationship with him. We understand that our worship itself is not constrained by a building or by ritual, that it can happen anywhere and everywhere at any time if we are willing to give in to that spirit. You see, the Apostle Paul, in our second example of what a true worshiper is or what true worship is, describes true worship perfectly in Romans, the 12th chapter. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. That is Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And the apostle says, Beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable, perfect will of God. 
this is one of the deepest, most profound explanations of what true worship is. This passage contains the elements of true worship. First of all, the first element of true worship is there is the motivation to worship. And the motivation that Paul describes in Romans 12 is the mercies of God. Now, the thing to understand about the mercies of God is it's not simplistic. The mercies of God is all-encompassing. And what I mean by that is that God's mercies are everything that he has given us that we do not deserve. He has given us eternal love, eternal grace, the Holy Spirit, everlasting peace, eternal joy, saving faith, comfort, strength, wisdom, hope, patience, kindness, honor, glory, righteousness, security, eternal life, forgiveness, reconciliation, justification, sanctification, freedom, intercession, and so much more. You see, the knowledge and understanding of these incredible gifts motivates us to pour forth praise and thanksgiving, and in other words, worship. When we truly take the focus off of ourselves and place it on God and look at everything he has done and continues to do in our lives, we cannot help but to fall in worship. Also in this passage is a description of the manner of our worship. So Paul takes it a step further. He doesn't just say this is what true worship is and the motivation behind it, but he also describes the manner in which a true worshiper worships the Almighty. You see, Paul says that the manner of our worship is to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, a living holy sacrifice. And and many will ask, well, what does Paul mean by presenting our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice? You see, presenting our bodies means giving to God all of ourselves. It is not withholding any part of our being from falling into worship. It is a complete surrender of ourself to the spirit of worship. The reference to our bodies here simply means all of our human faculties, all of our humanness, our hearts, our minds, our hands, our thoughts, and our attitudes are to be presented to God. In other words, we are going to give up control of these things and turn them over to him, just as a literal sacrifice was given totally to God on the altar. But then some people will ask, well, I understand now what true worship is. I understand the method of our worship, but how do I surrender? How do I enter into this giving of my body, my humanness, not withholding into a living sacrifice? And the answer is clear. The passage is clear. By the renewing of your mind. We renew our minds daily by cleansing them of the world's quote-unquote wisdom and replacing it with true wisdom that comes from God. We worship him with our renewed and cleansed minds, not with our emotions. You hear that word emotions. So much of the postmodern Christian view that we live in is based on emotion and it is paramount that we understand that Paul is saying here we are not we are not true worshipers by our emotion no we are true worshipers because of a mind that is renewed by the spirit 
You see, brothers and sisters, emotions are a wonderful thing, but unless they are shaped by a mind saturated in truth, they can be destructive and out of control. Where the mind goes, the will follows, and so do emotions. Paul reiterates this further in 1 Corinthians 2.16 when he tells us that we have the mind of Christ, not the emotions of Christ. You see, friends, there is nothing more powerful than a changed or renewed mind. If you change the way a man thinks, you so change who he is. There is no change that can occur without the changing of the mind. When the mind is changed and renewed in Christ, true and sustainable change is what begins to take place. You see, today I believe the single biggest problem within our faith, within the faith is our inability to take our eyes off of ourselves and to put them on Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, we must decrease so that he may increase. We cannot be both full of self and of the spirit. You see, the problem is, is we expect our churches and our pastors to cater to our worship experience. And we believe that they should cater this experience to us ourselves rather than us catering the experience to God who is worthy. You see, true worship is God-centered worship. People tend to get caught up in where they should worship, what music they should sing in worship, and how their worship looks to other people. Focusing on these things misses the overall point. As we read earlier in John chapter 4, Jesus tells us that a true worshiper will worship God in spirit and in truth. This means that we worship from the heart in the way that God has designed. Worship can include praying, reading God's word with an open heart, singing, participating in communion, and serving others. It is not limited to one individual act or a certain way to do it, you see, but it is done properly when the heart and the attitude of the person are in the right place. You see, true worship by definition is not about us. It is about the Lord. Our worship should not be based on what we would rather want, but rather the glory and praise that God deserves. When we make worship about us, we leave ourselves devoid of the true worship experience and the blessing that comes from worshiping our God in both spirit and in truth. It is the postmodern influence that has infiltrated the church. It is the influence that no longer places the emphasis on God-centered, but rather feelings, emotions, and quote-unquote self. It makes truth subjective to individual feelings. And if truth is subjective, how can we ourselves find ourselves in worship in both spirit and that key word, truth? It is the thought of truth being subjective that has led us away from true worship. And you see, it is leading many to walk in spiritual blindness and has led many astray. It is the essence of this movement that the 
biblical definition of true worship has been lost. Brothers and sisters, I believe that many of us here in the American church have gotten too spoiled. We have gotten too comfortable and too complacent in our worship. We are content to show up and go through the motions once a week. And if our pastor or if our church is lucky, maybe include a midweek prayer meeting or a Bible study. We show up and we go through the motions and we leave church and we, we, we get upset when the certain church or the certain service doesn't meet our expectations. We get mad when they don't cater to what we desire or our style of worship. We are too focused on how we want worship to go instead of how we should be worshiping. We have brothers and sisters all over the world, brothers and sisters in Christ that are being persecuted, jailed, and even murdered for the faith that are worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And brothers and sisters, we are more concerned with making sure we worship comfortably, making sure that our worship experience is suitable to us instead of making sure that the worship that we are displaying is acceptable in the sight of God. I don't understand if you're understanding completely what I'm saying, but what I'm saying is we need to let go of what makes us comfortable. We need to let go of what we want and we need to let go of what pleases us. And we need and what we need is to become true worshipers. We need to let go and let God have his way. You see, not everybody may hear or process what I'm saying right now, but there is somebody out there that is entering into a spirit of true worship right now. The spirit of the Lord is moving in them and they can't help but offer themselves as a living sacrifice to God Almighty. You see, brothers and sisters, the third example of true worship is found in Ephesians, the fifth chapter. We get another glimpse of what true worship is. And if we look at verses 18 through 21, that is Ephesians, the fifth chapter, verses 18 through 21, we gain some very valuable insights into what the Bible defines true worship as. And verse 18 reads, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is a dis." But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God, the Father, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. One of the paramount things to understand in this passage is true worship is worshiping in the spirit true worship isn't going through the motions of worship a true worshiper surrenders themselves to the to the guiding of the holy spirit true worship is holy spirit led and holy spirit driven true worship isn't something that we plan but better yet it is something that we are led into by the spirit true worship isn't about wondering if the person next to you is going to look at you funny as you give God the glory. True worship isn't concerned or confined with where the praise takes place. True worship isn't confined just to the sanctuary of the church. When the spirit is at work, true worship can take place anywhere and everywhere. It can take place in the church house, in the schoolhouse, 
in the jailhouse, and even within your own house. When we truly surrender to the Spirit of God, and only then can we truly experience what is biblical true worship. Brothers and sisters, true worship is to know God. And to know God and to know of God are two completely different things. I don't think you understood what I said, so I'm going to say it again. True worship is to know God. And there is a difference between knowing God and knowing of God. You see, when we are talking to people, when we are describing our relationship with God, are we saying that we know God or are we saying that we know of God? Because you see, to know God means that we have a deep, intimate relationship with him. Whereas to know of God simply means that we are acquainted with him. Beloved, there is a difference. There is a difference between relationship and acquaintance. Are we acquainted with the Father or do we have a deep, intimate knowledge of who he is, how he operates, and his nature? You see, friends, we cannot truly enter a true worship experience without relationship. How are we going to worship who we do not know? Paul gives us another example of this. And you see, if we look in Acts, the 17th chapter, and we're going to look at verses 22 and 23, we get something very telling here. You see, Paul, as he is talking to the Greeks, he's walking through Athens and he sees something that catches his attention. And it begins, then Paul stood in the midst of Aropagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. You see, friends, true worship is the acknowledgement of God and all of his power and the glory in everything that we do. The highest form of praise and worship is to be obedient to him and his word. To do this, we must know God. We cannot be ignorant of him. When we know God, the theology of our mouths matches the theology of what we do and how we treat people. We become a living gospel. And by becoming a living message of the gospel, thus we become a living sacrifice, as Paul spoke of earlier in Romans 12. You see, when we know about Simply, when we simply know about God, brothers and sisters, we may speak nice words, but our actions will tell a different story. Friends, we are called for nothing short of intimate relationship, to be both hearers and doers of the word. You see, God is not calling us to simply know of him. He is calling us to a deep, personal relationship with him if we are to actually become a true worshiper. You see, if we do not have this relationship, there is no way that we can worship God. 
Paul tells the Athenians, I have found this altar to the unknown God. He says, the God you know of, but you don't know on an intimate level. That is what Paul is telling the Athenians in Acts 17. He says, I see the objects of your worship and I found this here altar that says to the unknown God. You know of this God that you worship, but you don't know who he is. But I am here to tell you exactly who he is and what he has done. I'm not here to encourage you just to know of him. I'm here to bring you into relationship with him. Paul in Acts 17 is seeking to bring the Athenians into true worship. You see, too often as Christians, I feel like we are content to know of God and not deepen that personal relationship, that we are content to go through the motions, but when we enter into true worship, we enter into relationship. And when we enter into a relationship, we are willing and able to surrender ourselves fully to the will of God in obedience. Beloved, there is a divide that is within our church. Frankly, there's a few divides, but one of the most concerning, I think, centers around the idea of worship. It is a divide between those who understand what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth, as we know from earlier, John 4, 24, and those who don't. The division of the church results in apathetic congregations and congregations suspected of what many will label as charismaticism. Too often, we're ready to thumb down our noses at the worship of somebody within the sanctuary because we think that the way they're worshiping is in a way that we don't find personally acceptable or palatable to our taste. You see, I want to focus on the emphasis here. It's not that we think God doesn't find it acceptable. It's that we find it as unacceptable. Yet again, we make the worship experience about us. And when we do this, we take it from God-centered worship to self-centered showmanship. I want to go back now to the Old Testament. And I want to talk about a man after God's own heart, King David. You see, King David was, by definition, a true worshiper. King David illustrates the type of worshiper that we should all strive to be. You see, David himself worshiped, as Jesus said, in spirit and in truth. David worshiped in a way that he did not care what others thought. David worshiped in a way some labeled as undignified or beneath a king. But David worshiped in a way led by the spirit and worshiped in a way he hoped was acceptable to God. And quickly, before we close, I want us to look specifically at a story from the life of David. And this story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 6. This is 2 Samuel chapter 6. And I want to give context to what this story is about. Many of us know the story of the Ark of the Covenant, that the Israelites believed that where the Ark was, the presence of God was. And David, this is as he begins to reign in Jerusalem. And, and the Ark of the Covenant is on its way into the city and there's an excitement that fills King David and, and we're going to look here at 2 Samuel 
chapter 6. For 400 years, brothers and sisters, the Ark of the Covenant had traveled with God's people, and it symbolized God's presence with them. And in 2 Samuel, David begins the long process of moving the Ark to Jerusalem, where he reigns as king. And I want to pick up at verse 5. And verse 5 reads, Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord, all kinds of instruments, of the fear wood, or on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. Now I want to skip down a little bit, and I want to look down at 14, verse 14, and we're going to go through verse 16. Once the ark has finally made its long-awaited entrance into Jerusalem. And verse 14 reads, Then David danced before the Lord with all of his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord with shouting with the sound of the trumpet. Now as the Ark of the of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through the window and saw David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So we see here that David is dancing and celebrating with the house of Israel that the presence of God was on its way into the city where he reigned. Jerusalem, the city of peace, the city of God. And, and in 2 Samuel, it talks about that David began to dance and he began to shout and he just loses it in a praise as he enters into a spirit of true worship. He enters into a praise break like there is like no other. It says that David was in a linen ephod and David was in such a point of worship and began to dance in the world and to just let the spirit take over that David essentially danced himself out of his clothes. And and we see here at the end of the passage that David's wife, daughter of Saul, Michael saw him and despised him. Michael is doing what so many of us within the body of Christ do within the church. You see, she saw the way that David worshipped and it wasn't the way that she thought somebody should worship. And she despised him and she despised him because she looked down on his worship. Now, I'm going to give you a personal story here. I, I actually did a whole sermon just on this story, and it was entitled More Undignified Than This. And in a way, I stepped on a few toes when I talked about who are we to judge a true worshiper when they allow the spirit to take over. And, and I was chastised for the way that I talked about that David danced before the Lord, because necessarily the church that I was at, they didn't believe that anyone should be dancing, let alone for the Lord. And they wanted to chastise me in the fact that, well, it's not about dancing. Next time you preach, we want to give you a different subject. But the thing is, is when you're a true worshiper, when you understand the definition of true worship and you have allowed yourself to be a living, breathing sacrifice, a vessel for the Lord, there is nobody and nothing that can stop the spirit of God as, as it moved. So I understood they wanted to chastise me for that word that I had given that church, but God had declared it and decreed it and there was nothing that was going to stop it. Now I want to continue in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and I want us to look at verse 20. 
Michael, what she says to David about his worship. And I want to look at verses 21 and 22, which is David's response. And I want to look at verse 23, which ends it with the judgment that was rendered upon Michael. And verse 20 reads, then David returned to blessed his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself in the eyes of the maids of his servants, and as one of his base fellows, shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people, the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this. And I will hum I will be humble in my own sight, but as for the maidservants of who you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Now I want to look closely at this. You see, it says that David returns home only for his wife to meet him before he can even get in. And it's there where she begins to critique and demean David's worship before the Lord. She begins to condemn David's worship as shameless and undignified. She felt his actions were unbecoming of that of a king. So many of us have had our Michael moments in church and even outside of the sanctuary where we find ourselves judging someone else's praise or some of us have been in David's position where we've had someone criticize our worship. David's response is perfect. It is a perfect declaration and a perfect response to what his wife says. He says, look, here I was before the Lord who chose me over your father. I'm not only going to play music before the Lord, but what you saw before, it ain't nothing yet. You see, I will be even more undignified than that. And for those servants that you're talking about, they're going to hold me in regard for the way that I have worshipped. David says, I don't care what you think about my worship. I am going to humble myself before the Lord and I'm going to surrender myself into a spirit of truth worship for my God. You see, he takes it he takes it even a step further by saying he will get more undignified than this. What he's really telling Michael is, oh, you thought that was bad. If you really thought I was unbecoming before, just wait until this Holy Ghost hits me one more time. I'm going to be even more undignified in your sight. And I want to look at how the story ends, which is verse 23, and it renders judgment upon Michael. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. You see, because she judged at David's worship of the Lord, she found herself barren. She was barren spiritually and because of her judgment against David she became barren in the womb she was barren in the spirit of true worship so God made her barren in her offspring 
Brothers and sisters, let us allow ourselves to be living sacrifices. Sacrifices. Let us bow before the Lord in true worship. Let us worship our God in spirit and in truth. Let us not find ourselves seeking to satisfy our own desires for worship. May we let the Spirit move us towards worship that is acceptable, not in our eyes, not in our neighbor's eyes, not in our pastor's eyes, not in each other's eyes, but that is acceptable in the sight of the Lord. Until we meet again, be blessed, God blessed, and I love you.